0: Shut up, and sit down.
1: You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund.
2: Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge Keeping you connected with all things sports I'm your host John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast Bringing you this sports show What's it like to be the fall ball guy? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve On episode 90 of The Bridge Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren it's never good when your favorite team can be used as a verb and a negative connotation is immediately assumed at one time not long ago college football teams didn't want to have any examples of clemsoning which is a far call from the joy of nobody circling the wagons quite like the Buffalo Bills. If you hear that the Cleveland Browns have browned, your next thought would most likely be, what the hell did they do now? Well, let's find out. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of... Sports news, red like real news. The Cleveland Browns are at a point in history where jokes made at their expense are becoming less funny and more sad. The Browns have one win in their last 24 football games have had just two winning seasons in the 19 years since rejoining the league, nine head coaches within that span, and 28 starting quarterbacks. Ben Roethlisberger has played the most games in Cleveland at the quarterback position. He's played his entire career for the Pittsburgh Steelers. However, all that doesn't mean that more jokes can continue to be made. The latest snafu dealing with the Cleveland Browns involved sending and receiving important emails. Something you would think would be a piece of cake in 2017. You, sir, don't know the Cleveland Browns. The NFL trade deadline ends at exactly 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So, of course, the Browns found themselves working out a deal in the hour before the deadline ended. As the minutes ticked down, the Browns reached a deal with the Cincinnati Bengals, who would trade them backup quarterback A.J. McCarron for a second and third round pick in the 2018 NFL Draft. Seemingly easy enough. Both teams should then send their paperwork of the trade to the NFL with a quick call to double-check that everything was received. Once the NFL gets both documents and makes sure that the language is all the same, the trade is approved. Instead, things went down a little bit differently, as reported by Mary Kay Cabot of Cleveland.com the Browns director of football administration sent an email with the paperwork to the Bengals at 3.54 p.m., six minutes before the deadline. Unfortunately, the Bengals didn't recognize the email address because they had been dealing with the VP of football operations, Sashi Brown. And since they were putting their own paperwork together... The email was never noticed. The Browns didn't email the NFL directly either, thinking that the Bengals would pass the information along. According to Cabot, the NFL got the Bengals' notification at 3.55 p.m. and copied the Browns on it. Had the Browns simply included the NFL on their email to the Bengals, the trade would have gone through. In layman's terms, the Browns failed to complete a trade because they didn't cc the National Football League in an email nor give a follow-up call to make sure everything was received and accounted for. Hell, the NFL would have more than likely been happy to wait on the phone with the Browns and give step-by-step instructions on what to do next much like you would in explaining to your grandmother how to set up her Wi-Fi password. But for a team who has made several trades in the past, it's curious that they would struggle in completing this deal. Perhaps we should go back to using fax machines. Or perhaps it became better to just cut their losses, which to this point include passing on the likes of Teddy Bridgewater, David Carr, and Jimmy Garoppolo in the 2014 draft to instead pick Johnny Manziel, who, to be fair, is the last quarterback to win a game on the Browns. The Browns can neither trade for a quarterback nor draft one, as they also decided to pass on Deshaun Watson and Carson Wentz in the 2016 draft in favor of Deshaun Kaiser, who must feel great about his future in Cleveland. Considering the Browns tried to trade for Jimmy G in the offseason, naturally for more than they would have given up for A.J. McCarron, a man who comes out of this as the real winner of the failed trade. Instead of going to the Cleveland Browns, A.J. McCarron gets to go home to this.
1: You see that lovely lady there. She does go to Auburn. I want to admit that. But she also Miss Alabama. And that's A.J. McCarron's girlfriend. Okay. And right there on the right is D.D. Bonner. That's A.J.'s mom. Wow. I'm telling you quarterbacks. You get all the good looking <laughs> women. Ah, it's a What a beautiful woman. Wow. He's A.J.'s doing some, some things right. down So, in so if you're a youngster in Alabama, start getting the football out and throw
2: it around the backyard with pops. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to check our emails. When we come back, we'll talk to a baseball collector about being one of the most hated baseball fans on the internet. We'll be right back on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to The Bridge anytime at 929-Bridge-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week we want to know, what is your biggest moment from the 2017 Major League Baseball season and why? Now to this week's guest in Zach Hampel. You know him as Fall Ball Guy and for diehard baseball fans and casual fans alike, you definitely know him or have at least seen him. Whether you love him or hate him, Zach is a polarizing figure to say the least in baseball fandom, turning a passionate hobby of snagging baseballs at ball games for the past several decades into a career. He's the grandfather of ball hawking and has a loyal following of fans, both young and old, who put his tried and true methods to the test at games. And not only will you see him roaming the stands during batting practices, you'll also see him taking the time to sign countless autographs and pose for countless selfies before, during, or after the games. You also might know Zach from some more negative portrayals in baseball media from his decision of what to do with A-Rod's 3,000th hit to attending a game put on for service members in Fort Bragg, to most recently being in prime position to catch a home run at Yankee Stadium in the ALDS, only to have Aaron Judge jump up and rob it. He's been on The Tonight Show with Leno, Late Night with Conan, featured on SportsCenter, MLB.com, and Vice Sports. He's written three books, which is how I was first introduced to him for his first book back in 99. He also holds a world record in an 80s arcade game. He has a rubber band ball that is most likely heavier than your family members and some interesting decor within his apartment in New York City. Instead of breaking down the World Series, since Game 7 will be airing the same night as this show airs live, and I don't know a winner for this recording, I wanted to know who Zach Campbell was, how he turned his hobby into a career, and why some people on the internet hate him so much. The first two were pretty easy, but I can't figure out the last one. And maybe this will change your mind on that, too. Now, Zach has been very thorough in answering any questions you can think of under his facts page on zachhample.com, and has also addressed any of the quote unquote scandals that he's had to deal with in recent years, both with blog posts and on other shows. So if we don't happen to touch on something particular in this interview, you'll still be able to find it somewhere else. Don't worry about that. Even though Zach was incredibly generous with his time and answering everything I thought to ask. We'll chat about how this all got started, some tips and tricks to his success of ball hockey and how he's handled the good and the bad of that success. What he does once baseball season is over and much, much more. The interview has been edited to fit this show for those of you listening live on Sports Radio America, and you can hear it in its entirety, as well as our weekly gambling segment with Donnie Rightside at LondonBridge.com or on iTunes tomorrow night. You can follow Zach on Twitter. He's at Zach underscore Hample. That's Z-A-C-K underscore H-A-M-P-L-E. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Zach Hampel. He's a published author, Arkanoid world champion, and fall ball guy, the best ball hawker in the world, if we're being honest. Zach, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, and I love that you put Arkanoid in front of the baseball stuff. That actually makes me very happy.
2: I have to do that because you are the world record holder in that game. Does that still stand as we're doing this recording?
0: Very much so. And, you know, it's that's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Everybody always wants to talk about baseball and I get it. But Arkanoid is one of the loves of my life. And it's a classic arcade game that's 31 years old. So I realize it doesn't get that much attention, but. It's still very dear to me. So thank you. Thank
2: you. Not a problem at all. And I've been looking forward to chatting about what most people know you do. And for those that don't, we'll hopefully have a good idea once we're done. Let me help set the scene first. You have your own baseball card. So I thought I could put several questions that you're frequently asked into one and have you rattle off your career stats, if you will, how many balls you've caught, how many you've kept, how many stadiums you've been to, favorites, how many baseballs you've caught in a specific game, things of that significance that you think should be on the back of your baseball card now.
0: Well, I've been to 53 different major league stadiums, including a bunch of places that no longer exist and other venues where MLB may have traveled overseas to play a couple of regular season games. I've snagged 10,163 baseballs, including batting practice, but 55 home runs during games. The biggest one was Alex Rodriguez's 3,000th hit. I also caught Mike Trout's first career home run. Favorite ball would be the last home run that the New York Mets ever hit at Shea Stadium. I caught that one in September of 2008. And I've gotten at least one baseball at every single game I've been to for more than the last 24 years, 1,401 consecutive games for me with at least one ball. So how's that for a few stats? And my one-game record is 36.
2: Excellent. And we're going back to, I believe it was 1990, the last time you haven't gotten a baseball at a game?
0: 1993. I got my first ball in 1990, but then had a few shutouts here and there, you know, averaged maybe one or two balls a game. It was tougher back in the day because Shan Yankee Stadium used to only open 90 minutes early on weekdays. You'd get about half an hour of BP. Throwing balls into the crowd wasn't nearly as much of a thing then as it is now. The strike happened in 1994, and players and teams had to be more friendly, so they started tossing more balls up. So the numbers have increased for me. I've gotten better at it. I've developed a lot of strategies over the years, and I probably average about six balls per game now. And if I made a point of skipping day games when I know there's not going to be batting practice, skipping rainy games when there's not going to be BP, if I sat closer to the dugouts and tried to get toss-ups all night, the numbers would be bigger. If I weren't focusing on YouTube so much, that sometimes pulls me away from getting balls because I have to stop and explain things. The numbers would be higher, but I really like where I am with it right now. And it's really taken over my life in an awfully fun way. And there's
2: also people now asking you for autographs and selfies and conversations while you're trying to do what you love to do as well, which we can get into later in this interview. And I guess I should start by winding the clocks back a little bit and posing the question you've been asked hundreds of times. How did you get into catching baseballs?
0: I remember seeing major league baseball on TV for the first time when I was maybe four or five years old and I was watching with my dad and it just seemed really fun and the cameras would show people in this in the crowd scrambling for baseballs and holding them up and celebrating like it was the best thing that ever happened to them and it's funny I want to say that that made some kind of impression on me and made me want to do it but then again how many millions of Other kids out there saw the same thing, but they didn't go on to become completely bonkers about it. So there's obviously some weird wiring in my brain somehow where I'm prone to obsessions, I guess. But for whatever reason, that became my thing. I went to games for six years from the ages of six to 12 and never got a ball. And then I finally went to batting practice, got a couple of toss-ups one day at Shea Stadium. And I think I was really hooked from that point. It became it went from being like a dream or an ambition to being something that became a reality that I just wanted to experience more and more.
2: Were you a fan of a specific team in the early days, or were you just going as a fan of the game, like you are now?
0: I loved the Mets growing up; they were my favorite team. Um, you know, I was I was uh, what nine years old when they won the World Series back in 1986 which means I was just young enough that my parents made me go to bed every night and I couldn't even watch the ends of the games on TV. So I'll never forgive them for that. But I loved the Mets, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, Gary Carter, Ron Darling, Sid Fernandez. I mean, I could name the whole team, but those were my guys. But over time, I don't know. I just, I stopped rooting for the Mets and just rooted for baseball in general. And I I started to like players on other teams. Like I could never bring myself to root against Greg Maddox, even when he came and pitched at Shea Stadium. And I just realized, you know what? I don't think it's accurate to call myself a Mets fan. And to this day, I don't have a favorite team. I just love the sport. Yeah.
2: I know you played baseball in college and through high school. Did your hobby in the early stages serve as a way to keep baseball as a game in a sense something you can continue to participate in instead of just becoming a spectator
0: it's definitely a participatory thing for me and i guess i'm a little bit spoiled in that sense because i don't just want to be a spectator i want to be part of the game but of course not so much a part of the game that i'm interfering with balls in play there was that there was a, a moment in the american league division series just a few weeks ago at yankee Stadium where the Indians Francisco Lindor hit a deep fly ball and I was right there and I could have reached out and caught it but I kind of held back and Aaron Judge jumped up and caught it you know I don't need a Steve Bartman situation happening to me but so I will say that as far as wanting to be part of the game that's where I'll draw the line but it's definitely like my own game within the game it's like my version of playing fantasy baseball some people keep score I like to run around and catch baseballs and it really makes me focus and it just adds a whole nother layer and dimension to this sport that I really just love so much anyway.
2: I should preface this interview by also letting the listeners know that you've written or recorded answers to just about every question someone might have about what you do from how to catch fall balls, how to find success at every major league ballpark, just about every question I'll be asking you. So if we don't get to something, dear listeners, Zach has most likely talked about it but I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you to describe a Cliff Notes version of sorts of how you approach a baseball game, say in the summer, from the research before the game to what time you arrive and what you bring and basically what you do as fall ball guy, as people know you as.
0: That really depends on the stadium because some places have a lot of standing room and walkways and friendly security guards that don't breathe down your neck every two seconds and check tickets. So you can really wander all over the place and even position yourself differently depending on who's batting and who's pitching without breaking the rules, without blocking anyone's view. You know, it's, it's like people who maybe are used to city field or Yankee stadium where you kind of, Pick your spot and that's that because they have people checking tickets at every staircase. It's hard to believe almost. It's hard to imagine that there are some places where you can go anywhere. Just walk around the stadium um, actually within the seats, not just tucked underneath the overhangs and the concourses. So if I'm in a place where I can roam freely, I'll really have to pay closer attention to the pitching matchup and the starting lineups and the weather and think about the crowd size and where people are likely to be clustered and how I can try to avoid them and find some space for myself, right field versus left field, third base side, first base side. Is it a sinker ball pitcher, someone with downward movement, or is it someone with a high nineties fastball where guys are going to swing under it and foul back a lot of balls into the second deck. So there's all these things that I think about, but, I don't really do much research other than maybe just looking to see who's pitching, maybe a quick glance of the roster, the number of righties and lefties, maybe look at box scores from the previous few days to see like, oh, they're facing a lefty. Well, what was their lineup like the last time they faced a lefty? But uh, a lot of it beyond that is just instinct. I know where balls are likely to land. I know what major league hitters are capable of. Certain guys are slap hitters. They don't have much power. Other guys come up there swinging for the downs. So at this point, it's really instinct. But I do want to just take a look and see who's likely to be playing and consider it a little bit thoughtfully like like that.
2: How long did it take for you to become skilled at what goes into ball hawking? You mentioned instinct and that does come into play just from judging fly balls to managing your way over seats and up and down rows without tripping over yourself. How are you able to make those types of things to be successful at this instinctive?
0: It's taken a long time and you know, I'm, I still feel like I'm getting better at it and I still feel like I have some things to learn. I still find myself making mistakes where, you know, a mistake for me is not, oh man, uh, that ball hit off my glove and I, I wasn't good at catching it. No mistakes for me are more along the lines of, you know, this dude just hit a ball there. And why wasn't I there? I should have been there. I should have, Known that he was likely to hit it there, but instead I was, he, it's just like, of course, that's what makes it fun. Cause you never really know where the ball is going, but uh, I I feel like I cost myself a couple of chances to catch home runs in the world series at games one and two at Dodger stadium. And if things had been a little bit different, I could have, I should have caught at least one, probably could have caught two and, and maybe even three. Cause there were a lot of opportunities. So that, that'll haunt me over the off season. But, um, you know, I, I did play college baseball. I'm good at judging and catching fly balls. So the, the physical part of it comes pretty easily at this point. I'm good at climbing over rows of seats while the ball is in midair. I can take my eye off the ball, run to the spot, almost like a major league outfielder would do and look up and you know, I, sometimes I guess wrong for sure. Sometimes the wind is blowing. Sometimes the ball tails. Sometimes it's hot and the ball carries. Whatever. I I make mistakes, but I've gotten pretty good at that. I guess the biggest challenge is just uh, picking the wrong spot sometimes when I am at a stadium where I have different options. And that drives me absolutely crazy.
2: It's interesting you mention continuing to learn with what you do. And you were basically the architect for this years back when you first wrote that book and people read it and understood what you were doing. And that continued with your second book. So now that there's a generation of younger fans of the game that look to you as the person that got them in a sense inspired to do this. But now you can look at them and maybe pick up a thing or two as well. So it's interesting how that's probably come full circle for you just when there's now been more people doing something that you might have been one of the only people doing it extraordinarily well is there advice that you give to a younger generation or anyone that asks you how they should get into ball hawking and try to do what you do
0: that's a good question and i i have noticed that it's more difficult for me now to catch baseballs because i've Shared so much advice on how to do it that it's fairly easy for anybody to pick it up and have a reasonable amount of success. It used to be back in 1992, 93, I was the first and only one that would have a hat of the visiting team that wasn't actually a fan of the visiting team. That was a strategy I came up with. You dress like you're a fan of the road team, they're more likely to notice you and toss you a ball. Now, when When the home team jogs off the field for batting practice and the visitors come out, I'll look around the outfield seats, and sometimes there are no fewer than a dozen kids rummaging through their backpack, pulling out the visiting team's gear, switching it up. And, you know, I've sort of – I've created my own competition, if you want to think of it that way, but it's also really cool. I'm really happy to be able to share that advice with people and see the success that they can have and and just help people enjoy the game more. But – I guess what would set someone apart beyond just the the basic strategies of, you know, bring a glove, bring visiting teams gear, print the rosters, learn how to ask for baseballs in Spanish and Japanese, all that stuff. Anybody can do those things, but the, the kids out there sort of getting into this who are really good at it are the ones who are very athletic and can judge fly balls and catch fly balls. And you can't teach that. You either have it or you don't. But you can certainly practice. You can get out to the park and have your friends hit fungos, play baseball. And, you know, again, one of my strategies is, well, make sure you have some room to run. Make sure you pick an empty row. And I'll see kids even doing that. But it's like they have no idea why they're doing it. And they'll stand in the same place for every hitter, not realizing that, some one guy might be the cleanup hitter, one guy might be the lean up, the, the leadoff hitter, and they're not really able to predict the nuances and the different spots where guys are likely to hit the ball. So that just comes with instinct and really loving the game and being a student of the game. And it helps if you play it yourself and you know what's likely and what's possible. So, you know, uh, I, I guess I would just encourage people to really, really pay attention and to try to get good at it from every possible angle.
2: What made you decide? to go public with all of this, to put your secrets out there and to write them down and to show how-to videos and really just give all the information that you've gathered to the public without asking anything for return?
0: Well, I'm not going to say that I haven't asked for anything because I've written about it in books, which have made me some money, and I now have a YouTube channel where I Put lots of videos up of myself at games teaching how to do it, and I make money from the videos that's monetized. So, I mean, f- from that standpoint, I've gotten something back from it, but I never started doing this to make money. And even when I was first sharing my advice, it wasn't really a money thing. Um, I was interviewed a few times after I snagged my thousandth ball in 1996, and one of those interviews was with Men's Health Magazine. They wrote a short generic story with advice on how to catch a baseball at games. And when they credited me in the article, they didn't even mention my last name. They just said, our source is Zach, you know, a a student at Guilford College in North Carolina. My dad, who was a writer, was so pissed off at that, that he encouraged me to write my own book about it. Um, so that I could basically get the credit for being an expert. And I also noticed that the few interviews I did at the time were always so brief. And I just never had a chance to share details and really get into it. And I knew a lot more than I was able to share publicly in the, in these interviews. So I guess it's, uh, it's my dad's fault, if you want to put it that way, that I ended up writing books and, and really got to the place that I am now. But he was a mentor for me and showed me how to gather my ideas and write an outline for the book. I did all the writing myself on that first book. I was 19. I had just finished my freshman year in college. I hadn't even declared English as my major yet. But I wrote the thing, and he helped me edit it. And uh, looking back at that book now, I think it's awful. It's kind of embarrassing. But it's cool that it, it got published, kind of put me on the map, if you want to think of it that way, and really started me off on this journey, which is still going strong two decades later.
2: I was first introduced to you back when you wrote that first book in 1999. I probably bought it at one of those Scholastic bookmobile sales in fourth or fifth grade and thought it was one of the coolest things. And it's no longer in print. So I'm now going to be tasked with having to find it in a box somewhere. So I'm going to have to get my hands back on this book and refresh my memory. What don't you like about it or... What have you tried to maybe rectify either in your book or on your own website as well?
0: So the first book was called "How to Snag Major League Baseballs," and it's actually the first of three books that I've written. I rewrote the entire first book, made it a hundred times better and updated it, and made that the final third of my most recent book. Just the final third of that new book is longer than my entire first book was in the first place. So that's how I rectified it. All new info on players and stadiums and many more strategies that I've even picked up since then. And yeah, it's it's just a hundred times better. And that last book has info about baseballs themselves, the evolution of the ball, controversies with ball, a whole chapter called Death by Baseball. There's a chapter called Foul Balls in Pop Culture where I critiqued a bunch of tv and movie scenes with foul balls and i just really had a lot of fun and geeked out with it i got to visit the rawlings baseball factory in costa rica which hardly anybody gets to do so it was just all part of the research and i worked on that book for 18 months full time and of course i i've written a blog over the years i've gotten away from that now in favor of youtube but the blog is called the baseball collector. If people Google that, it'll come right up. There's hundreds of entries from games from 2005 uh, up to a couple of years ago. I still blog occasionally now, but most of my efforts are on YouTube at this point. And this year, I, I made it to 124 major league games. I hit up all 30 stadiums, and there are videos from all of those stadiums on my channel. So I think one of the best things about having videos from all the stadiums is that now when people email me saying like, I'm from Cincinnati and how do I catch balls at Reds games? Or do you have any advice for target field? You know, I, I used to either have to write out individual advice from people or copy and paste or write back and say, I just didn't have time. Now it's just like, yeah, I have tons of advice and I'll send them a link to the playlist on YouTube. And it's like, it's all right here. Have fun watching it. And, you'll learn a whole bunch of stuff and hopefully be entertained in the process. So it's just really fun to share that stuff and bring people along for the ride. Um, I realize that a lot of people don't get to visit all 30 stadiums or even more than a handful. So I kind of like to be the the eyes and ears for people and show folks what they're missing and just have a bunch of baseball adventures. And that's just kind of what I'm up to these days. It's It's been pretty wild for sure.
2: Like me, there are people that, got to know you from the first book or from maybe seeing you on television promoting the first book or even from promoting the next books to come or when a specific milestone might have been hit and people might see you on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno or different other outlets along those lines. You've been on tons of media outlets from big names like ESPN and a couple years ago. People might remember seeing you from what a lot of people surely probably were introduced with you from, but I'll pose the question to you instead of rattling off the different things that have happened. When did all this start taking off when you realized you were getting noticed either in a good or bad way?
0: I would say it really began for me when my first book came out in 1999 because it's a media-friendly hobby. It's a, it's a media friendly topic, you know, catching baseballs. It's, you know, there's a lot of TV cameras in stadiums and they always follow the balls into the crowd. So if if one person's getting a whole bunch of them, it, I mean, I guess it's only natural that people are going to take notice, but again, I didn't do it for the attention. It just sort of, I really just kind of stumbled into it. And then there came a point where it's like, all right, well, if this is a thing, then here we go. Let's do it. I guess it sort of took off again in 07 because my second book, Watching Baseball Smarter, came out then. So there was a good bit of publicity for that. And then in 2008, I caught home runs on back-to-back days at Yankee Stadium in the final week. And then a week after that, a week and a half later, I caught the last Mets home run ever hit at Shea. So the media kind of turned that into a circus, and that got me on Leno. And then a year later, I got on Conan because I was working with Major League Baseball, and they kind of arranged that. And it's just it just keeps going and going. My third book came out in 2011, and then I was sponsored for a whole season in 2013 by Big Sunflower Seeds. They sent me to all 30 stadiums as part of a big sort of media blitz slash charity fundraiser. And then in 2015, I snagged A-Rod's 3,000 kit So it's like I was already that guy that did all this stuff. And I think that's why the A-Rod thing was so big. It would have been big for anybody who got the ball. But I think the fact that it was me just kind of blew people's minds, including my own mind. It's still hard to believe when I think back to it. And then in 2016, I started really getting into the YouTube stuff. And now that's practically full time. And it just it's like, what's next? I don't I don't know how to keep outdoing myself but it it always seems to happen but at this point just trying to have fun with it and go to games and meet a lot of people on the way and I do my own charity fundraisers I try to give stuff back in the process but yeah there's definitely been some controversial moments where I've said and done some stupid things and you know I wish I could take back a lot of that stuff but there's this perception that for every baseball that I catch, there's a, a child that I must have knocked over and stolen the ball from. And I think people default to assuming negative things, which is unfortunate. But it's actually a very, very positive hobby. It's 99.9% positive for me in person. But if you get on Twitter, you'd think that I'm the worst person ever. So there's this weird sort of imbalance between perception and reality.
2: Right. It had to be something to definitely get used to, because when you first started this, there obviously wasn't social media and Twitter trolls and people that could just comment from behind the keyboard. They either had to read your book and and mail you a scathing letter or maybe go on a chat room forum in the early days of the internet and voice their displeasure there, where now People have 140 characters to call you every name under the book whenever you might be in the news. And that probably skyrocketed after the A-Rod 3000 hit because after it happened, you decided to hold on to the baseball. As you've mentioned several times, just leave the stadium with the baseball, a simple thing on its face, which turned out to be a crazy thing. I remember watching you on SportsCenter Center that morning after on two hours of sleep explaining your story and of course under my eyes. Right. And of course media members ran with the negative aspect of it. Why won't this guy give this baseball back? What's wrong with him? And curse words of course, from others, it probably was the most scrutinized event for you. As far as the online world was, maybe I, there are other occasions, but Was that maybe the lowest point when it came to the negativity that followed that event? How were you able to deal with both the good aspect of that when the Yankees donated a great donation to your charity, pitch in for Baseball, and and everything was rectified, and there was no big deal for it at all. But in those days, just what ended up happening afterward? How were you able to handle all of that?
0: Well, I wouldn't say that everything was rectified because I still get nasty comments on the internet and ever so occasionally in person from people telling me that I'm, you know, I won't repeat the insults, but basically why don't you give a rod his ball? And it's like, well, I did two years ago, you know, 99% of the media attention I got when I first got the ball and kind of came out swinging and was like, I'm not giving him the ball. And then when a nice thing happened at the end, All the the media that had been quick to hurl insults at me, uh, they were nowhere to be found and didn't really cover the follow-up as much. So I get it. You know, It's like the the initial story was sensational and got people's attention, and then people went on and didn't really hear the outcome of it. But I was getting – I guess that first night when I got home from Yankee Stadium, it was a Friday night, and basically for the entire weekend, I was getting – I would estimate about 100 Twitter notifications per minute. And I couldn't keep up with it. It was like shoveling a sidewalk in the blizzard. It's just like I could not, it it was impossible. And a lot of it was negative. And I even had some friends telling me that they saw death threats and I should probably just stay off Twitter. So I did. That's how I dealt with it. I dealt with it by just tuning it out. And you know what I actually would say that that's not my low point. Things were even worse in 2016 after I made the mistake of attending a baseball game at Fort Bragg. It was an active military base. And the fallout from that was really really awful. And I've I've talked about that a whole lot. There's really not much more that I can say at this point about that, but it was it was an awful mistake and I issued a public apology and There are still people that are really angry at me for having gone to that game. And I can understand why. And that's just something that I'll always feel bad about and that I'll have to live with. You know, I try to do a lot of good things for baseball and I have a lot of fun, but I've certainly made some bad decisions as well. And that was one of them.
2: With the negative on, social media and even the negative from the media in general there there always seems to be enough people that can't understand why you do this and what's in it for you and why they're even talking about it and it's it's just silliness is what it comes down to and it seems like it's getting to the point online where people are looking more for clicks by using your name and and poking fun at your hobby than they are by telling maybe The whole story or what's actually happened in a specific event, which is why I'm hopeful to clear some of that up as we continue talking. But I know around the Fort Bragg incident, you ended up going on Pardon My Take with Barstool Sports and getting to tell your story to their huge audience and have had a good repertoire at Barstool Sports in general, specifically with Big Cat. I know you guys did an event in Chicago at a White Sox game where he followed you around and got to see what fall ball guy does. And he ended up with a baseball, as you claim you will get everyone one and you haven't let anyone down yet. How does that helped Barstool in a sense, making what you do fun or making what you do something that people shouldn't hate, sort of showing the behind the scenes of This is just a hobby, much like everyone else has their hobbies. This is yours. And it's not something that people need to be angry online about.
0: Right. Um, I'm so happy to have the, the guys at Barstool on my side. And, of course, they've had their share of controversies, too, and we don't need to get into all of that. But as far as I'm concerned, they've been super cool with me. And I have to give them credit, a lot of credit, because... For a while, and really still, in a lot of places, it's sort of like the fashionable thing to do is to make fun of me, like "Ha ha! Look at this loser!" and he catches baseballs and a grown man bringing glove to a game. And why don't you knock down some more kids? Like you know, it's that—that's the clickbait. People want to read bad news; they don't want to read good news. And so, a lot of and media outlets would rather portray me as the bad guy that ruins childhood dreams. Blah blah blah. But Barstool Sports is one of the few places, and they've really done it the best and the most recently, that flipped the script. It's so easy to pile on, but they did the opposite. And they were like, look at this dude. What he does is cool, and it's fun, and we're down with it, and all you haters can suck it. I mean, that's basically their approach. And Big Cat is just such a funny, awesome dude, and he's got a tremendous following. and the. And people out there who follow Barstool, it's, I mean, it's a very dedicated fan base. And so the fact that Big Cat was cool with me, I think he helped show people like, you know what, you can be cool with this guy too. And every stadium I go to, you know, I have a lot of kids coming up to me who see me on YouTube and I have a lot of older guys too, you know, like college, post-college guys that I feel like maybe ordinarily would be making fun of me because like, haha, look at this loser. But they're like, yo, it's foul ball guy. Like, say hey to big cat for me. And like, you know, we think it's cool. So, I mean, huge thanks to Barstool because I feel like they get it. And they they presented the whole thing as in a fun way, which it really is. You know, anybody who's seen me at stadiums and, and sees what I'm all about and has gotten to know me understands that, It's a very positive, fun thing, and people really dig it. And so, again, just thanks to Barstool for presenting that accurately.
2: You have shown that positivity through your videos, and people can find that on Twitter or on social media, where you have no problem meeting with... Anyone that approaches you, as long as they wait for, you know, a righty to come up when you're in right field. So there's not a chance that a ball is going to be coming your way during batting practice. Children will approach you and and grown adults will approach you with books or with baseballs or with gloves to sign. And you'll take selfies with people. Anyone that comes up to you will get a second of your time. And people could just blow off fans that come up to them, especially when you're, of course, concentrating on what you're trying to do. But you do take the time to meet with everyone. And I don't know if a lot of people realize that because they think you're busy elbowing children out of the way to get your next ball. What does it mean to you to have a fan base in a sense or to have people come up to you and tell you their stories and to interact with fans who really appreciate what you do and get to do
0: that at every game you attend. It's the best feeling in the world. And yeah, it can be difficult when batting practice is is happening and guys are blasting balls into the seats left and right, or they might at any moment. And and a lot of people are coming up to me that is difficult, but it's completely flattering. And, you know, I, I think we all on some level want people to take notice of what we're doing and appreciate it you know, whether it's your boss or whether it's your significant other or a parent, like, you know, it's just nice to get some positive feedback. And I feel very lucky to be getting a lot of it from people at every stadium. And sometimes I just take a step back from it and it's like, well, who am I? What do I do? Like I, I go to games and catch baseballs and why should that even matter? Why does anybody care? But then again, I did work for 18 months on a book about baseballs. And I understand how important the baseball is. It's the centerpiece of the national pastime. And there's just a lot of emotion attached to it. And and I I realize also why it is such a big deal. And I just try to I try to use my platform for good and not evil. And again, I've made some mistakes, but to be in a position where I can connect with so many folks every day at stadiums, it's it's something that I never dreamed of, really. Uh, I took a lot of crap in the comments section on YouTube recently. I'm normally with a videographer, but occasionally if he's not around or if I go to a, a big game on my own, I'll bring my GoPro and try to record it myself, so that gives it a different perspective. And there were clips that I showed in the video of me during batting practice getting approached by people including kids saying like can I get a picture can you sign and I I showed myself saying several times like uh yeah but not right now guys or like hang on there's you know there's a lefty up and a lot of people were very critical saying that I'm rude to my fans and how dare I blow off kids and and all this stuff but there were also a lot of people that were like um idiots like He's not being rude at all. He said he'd do it later, and like, let the man have his space and time. So it's just sort of interesting to see how people interpret that. And that's really how it goes in general for me. You know, no matter what I do, there are people that they want to find the fault in it, and they just default to the negative. And it's like, oh, he's a jerk. And why would he do this? But I feel like people who are thoughtful will realize, like, wait a minute, there's a reason that he did that. And it's it actually wasn't as bad as as you folks think. So, It's just funny to kind of sit back and watch people argue about me and I'll certainly chime in and try to defend myself a little bit and thank the people who say nice things. But yeah, I, I just, I try to keep the peace in general and I get along with most folks. And I mean, I'd say once a month over the course of this season, on average, I had someone say something rude to me in person at a game. And if you think about the fact that I go to like 20 games a month, and I meet about 100 people per game. That's a pretty good ratio. So, you know, I, it really is the people who've never met me who are the most critical. I just try to stay above the fray. But sometimes it's awfully tempting when someone's being particularly stupid to to try to set the record straight. But then that can cause more problems because then people think I'm a baby and I'm too sensitive and... Just let it go. But I don't know. There's false accusations being thrown around. I don't always want to let it go. So it's it's tough. This is my constant struggle. You know, <laughs> it's it's just pretty wild. Again, that this whole thing has gotten to this point.
2: As we've mentioned, you've addressed most of what you've had to deal with either on your website or through video. People can find a lot of the answers that they might even want answered at Zach I did save a couple things for the end. I have a segment called Easy or Pass, where I ask some quick hitting questions that you can pass on, but I think they'll be ones that you'll enjoy answering, and we could rapid fire them out of the way instead of having more stories told, even though I'd love to hear them. I don't want to take up too much of your time. The first sure, one let's is. Do it what's the worst injury you've sustained from all of this hopping over rows of seats, running around aside from getting assaulted at Yankee stadium. I guess we should preface that because that did happen too. a couple weeks after the A-Rod home 3000 hit, but in general pulled hamstrings, what are you dealing with as far as injuries go?
0: The worst was a severely sprained ankle that resulted in me wearing a boot and being on crutches for three weeks during the season. And I, I kept going to the stadiums that I had planned, and it was awful.
2: How long have you had your baseball glove?
0: I've had the current one for maybe two or three years, but I didn't start using it regularly until last season. It's a Wilson A2000 infielder's glove. Kind of funny to be running around catching home runs with an infielder's glove, but I played shortstop my whole life, and I feel really comfortable with that glove.
2: So you haven't been attached to, say, like the Bill Buckner glove that ended up folding over and having him miss the ground ball in the World Series. You don't mind using different gloves throughout the years?
0: Not at all. I was a Mizuno kid growing up, and then Rawlings for a long time after that, and I've switched over to Wilson for now, and I might use something else if another glove turns up in my life, and I like it more for whatever reason. So yeah, I just want to use what works without any sentimentality.
2: How long did it take you to come up with the glove trick?
0: Uh, the device that I can lower down and pick up baseballs that are out of reach. I tried to come up with something one off season when I was maybe 14, came up with uh, an object that was very clunky and heavy and made of metal You could get away with bringing stuff like that into stadiums pre-9-11, but it didn't really work too well, and I went back to the drawing board, and some weeks later, I came up with the current version, the glove trick. So it was sort of a delayed process spread out over several months.
2: Will you ever throw a home run ball back as part tradition in some stadiums?
0: I will never throw back a home run ball that I catch, but I would be delighted to throw someone else's home run ball back. If, if you catch a visiting team's home run and your arm isn't so good, but you want to make a statement, you want, you want the pitcher who gave up that home run to be the one picking up the ball when it's thrown back on the field, just come over to me, but let's do it fast before security gets mad. And I will happily throw your baseball back on the field and I will reach the infield. I might throw a dummy ball back. You know, if I have a, a BP ball handy and I catch one, Maybe to silence the crowd, I might give that a hurl, but no, I don't think I'll ever throw an actual home run ball back on the field.
2: Yeah, you could have that ready in your pocket and flip it out like a cowboy in the West. I don't think anybody would notice that the real ball was still in your glove. They'd just be happy that one was coming back. Are you still friendly or friends with Lisa Ann?
0: How did I know you were going to ask that?
2: People are going to kill me if I don't, for whatever reason... Keep them updated with your friendship with Lisa Ann. I don't know what it is, but people are going to be interested.
0: I am still in touch with her a little bit. I think she's living full-time or close to it in L.A., and I'm in New York, so geography gets between us. But I, I feel like she's just a text or an email away. And In fact, I might drop her a line after our interview and say hello. Um, she's, she's a great person and it's been nice getting to know her. And, uh, you know, we went to a baseball game together, uh, right before the whole A-Rod thing. And I'd love to take her to another game. So maybe someday we'll see.
2: In your apartment, aside from baseballs, I don't know if people realize you don't keep all of your baseballs in your apartment. There's storage for that. You live in Manhattan. If you had enough room for the baseballs, you'd be making, taylor swift type of money and i don't think ball hawking does quite that there's a 280 plus pound rubber band ball walls covered with magazine pages a half bathroom of business cards covering the walls you have that arcanoid video game as we mentioned a huge wall of vhs tapes tons of pillows what what are you most proud of in the apartment or is it yes to all of those things (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, yes to, to all of it. I think, uh, I'm proud of the rubber band ball cause I started that thing when I was four years old. So I don't think a lot of people still have an object from when they were four, once they really get up into the adult years, that's, that's meaningful and sort of like a part of their lives. So maybe that shows that I'm psychologically deficient in some way, but uh, it, it certainly means a lot to me the walls covered with magazines. That's fun. It's just so beautiful and striking visually and sort of reflects the the madness going on inside my head. Yeah. My apartment is very much me. And even if I would never have another visitor ever, or if I never would have had one in the first place, I still would have done it up the same way because it's just fun. But of course, when people come over, they absolutely love it. And, uh, Some people know about it ahead of time if they've read about it or seen pictures or videos from my place online. But sometimes I have people come over that just have no idea and they're just like, what the hell is going on? But people generally like it.
2: Is there an era of baseball that you wish you were able to attend a game in with the skills that you've acquired now, with the opportunity to do what you do now? Is there a time period or even a specific player that you wish you were around for to sort of mosey around the stadium and try to get a ball from there?
0: Well, Babe Ruth, duh. But, I mean, I I really – Regret. I mean, it's not like I can do anything about it, but I I kind of wish that I'd been born maybe twenty years earlier, um, just because all those ballparks of the like the 70s and 80s and early 90s that I never got to go to. Some of them were just cavernous and not very well attended. You know, I think of Cleveland's old Municipal Stadium. I think it held like 75,000 people, but they probably averaged about 2,000 some years. I just think it would have been really fun to run around completely empty outfield sections and have very little competition going for home run balls. It seems like baseball is more popular now than ever and the stadiums kept they keep getting built smaller and smaller to increase demand for tickets. So every now and then you'll get lucky if there's a rain delay or you know extra innings or a team is just really out of it. For whatever reason, they have to reschedule a game, and you'll get a very empty stadium. But I feel like that happened a lot more back in the day, and that's fun. And I'm not rooting for the failure of Major League Baseball. It's not like I want there to be fewer people. I'm just saying, you know, I think in general, if you're used to any place that's crowded and suddenly it's not, there's something almost magical about that, and I wish I had gotten to experience that more.
2: Does it disappoint you at all that you were – unable to actually catch A-Rod's 3,000th hit. Though you did end up with the baseball, it didn't actually end up in your glove right away.
0: It disappoints me when people use the word catch for any baseball that's picked up off the ground. They
2: love reminding you about this. Whenever that video comes up, they'll let you know that you didn't catch it.
0: And that's fine. I mean, I don't, you know, Jeffrey Mayer did not catch that Derek Jeter home run asterisk you know it bounced off his wrist um i so i just feel like we need to be accurate with our language i don't want any more credit than i deserve i did not catch a rod's 3000 pin. i snagged it i picked it up i retrieved it i obtained it whatever but yeah it would have been great to catch it and i would have caught it if that exact ball were hit you know in the same spot any other day because I knew right where it was going to land. It was like two rows over my head, and I was trying to back up the steps, but it was just so crowded because everybody else was going for it that I got blocked. So it happens. Um, I ended up with the ball, and that's the most important thing. And I feel very lucky that there was no controversy about the ball, about the ownership of the ball itself. You know, there was a situation famously with the Barry Bonds home run back in the day where – one guy caught it and supposedly another guy yanked it out of his glove and they sued each other over ownership and went to court. And the the cost that they paid their lawyers ended up being more than the ball even sold for. I'm just so happy that I didn't end up in a situation like that where, you know, there, there was no dispute about the fact that I got it and I was entitled to it. So instead it was just a the media and a million people out there crapping on me for being selfish and wanting to keep it initially. So I guess that's better than the alternative.
2: I usually ask people the children's game or the board game that they would be able to win consistently. And you'll be able to answer that quite easily when it comes to board games. Scrabble. Right.
0: (laughs) Yes. If anybody can beat me at Scrabble, that means they're really, really, really good at Scrabble. Because I played tournament Scrabble. I've, I worked at three different national championships and I ran a Scrabble club in college and I used to attend the New York city Scrabble club regularly, which is still run by a former world champion. So I'll put my Scrabble skills up against almost anyone's.
2: You can ask for a baseball in more than 30 languages. What are some of the favorites of that list?
0: The favorites, I guess, would be the ones that are actually useful for getting baseballs. Spanish, dame la pelota por favor, Japanese, choto, bo oro kudasai, even Korean, kong, just But there's some other ones that are just party tricks at this point. You know, like, I don't know, Bulgarian, dili mi podal topkata, or uh, Russian, brosmanemi achik, Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, I can ask in Swahili and Turkish, uh, I mean, like, There's a lot of random languages that I've picked up. And if I'm just traveling somewhere, I meet a taxi driver that's from, you know, fill in the blank country that I've never been to. And they speak a different language. I'll just be like, hey, this is really random, but I need you to teach me how to say a certain thing. (laughs) And they probably assume that it's going to be asking for someone's phone number or like, you know, can I have a beer? But no, I just want to know how to ask for a baseball.
2: You attended the World Series games in Los Angeles, both one and two, and have done so in the past as far as World Series games are concerned, playoff games are concerned. This year in particular, you snagged your 10,000th baseball at one of your favorite stadiums, Camden Yards. People probably are curious to also know if you have any future goals or what might be next in the ball hawking lifestyle now that 10,000 has been crossed off.
0: I want to catch a world series home run and should have gotten one or two of them in LA, but I was stupid and had a little bit of bad luck. So definitely need to make that happen someday. I'd love to catch an all-star game home run, which is even tougher because you have at least four world series games every year, but only one all-star game. I would love to snag 100 baseballs in every current stadium. So I've probably done it in about 15 different stadiums or maybe a dozen current ones and, as well as some old ones. And I want to catch or snag 100 lifetime game home runs. So I'm going to have to attend at least 500 games more to get there and that's averaging about one home run every 10 games. So probably even more than 500 games someday, someday it's going to happen.
2: And I can close this with your most frequently asked question. Can I have a baseball?
0: No, leave me alone. Uh, so the answer to that question is I give away a ton of baseballs to kids and occasionally grownups at games. I'll catch them, hand them right over to the nearest kid. I also send baseballs directly to the charity pitch-in for baseball. But once I take balls home with me, other than sending them to the charity, I don't give them away. And I get requests all the time. I mean all the time. If I gave a ball to every person who asked, I'd have to rent out the Rawlings factory for a week or two. You know, I I realize that no matter how much someone gives, if they are in a position where they – seem to have a lot of something. There are going to be people that say that they should give more. And, uh, you know, I, I do what I can do. I am a collector at heart, and I like to own some baseballs. So I keep some. I give away a lot. And for me, that's, that's a good balance. And I hope people understand that and respect that.
2: So for anyone that is looking to get Behind you, or stand next to you, or follow you around during a ball game, they'll most likely find you during the regular season at at City Field or Yankee Stadium, since you have season tickets to both. Though you do travel throughout the year as well, keeping things quite busy. They can attend a game with you, with watch with Zach. There's more information on that on your website at zachhample.com. You're now in the off season and. I guess get to relax a little bit, get to recharge. Do you enjoy this time of year when baseball is over? Not to say that you don't love what you're doing at baseball games, but in a sense that you can spend more time with family and friends, travel to places that aren't ballparks and and sort of live the other aspects of your life that you don't necessarily get to do when you're doing 162 baseball games or close to that during a season.
0: This is absolutely my favorite time of year. I have the, uh, fo- I have FOMO, fear of missing out, where it's like if baseball is being played, I, I feel like I need to be there. But if I could just snap my fingers and make baseball take a five-year sabbatical, and then I wouldn't feel like I was missing anything, I'd be so happy to just get away from it for a while because there's a lot of other stuff that I want to do and enjoy doing and i just absolutely can't do it during the season at least as things have been for me recently where it's just all encompassing so again i mean that's that's not me complaining i'm in a great spot and i love what i do but um if if we're if we're being serious here the off season is by far my favorite time of year when i am most me and i am most alive
2: and there will surely be time years down the road where you can sit back and relax during the baseball season and maybe put all this into a book or whatever the next chapter will be after fall ball guy maybe retires one day. But for now you're continuing to do what you love to do and continued success with that. I hope people enjoyed hearing your stories, and hopefully things have been cleared up with some people that might have had other thoughts about what you do or who you are as a person. I hope that I cleared up any questions people might've had. And as we've mentioned, they can find the answers to that at several different outlets as well. But I really enjoyed getting to hear all of your stories and appreciate your time in coming onto the show. It's one of my favorite things to talk about baseball and doing so with someone that also enjoys the game is, is always equally fun. So thanks again, Zach, for coming on. I really enjoyed it.
0: You're very welcome. It was great talking. I'm glad we had this much time and thank you for, asking open-ended questions and letting me run with it that was really nice
2: we'll now jump into another edition of the toll booth with donnie right donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show picks. You can find Donnie at donnyrightside.com and at SportsbookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Rightside.
1: Is anybody got a dime? Uh, I don't have a Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Uh, <laughs>
3: Hey everybody, Donnie Rightside here from SportsbookReview.com and DonnieRightside.com. here on the bridge. Of course it's the bridge. We're going to cross over. We're going to pay some tolls. That's what we're designed to do. That's what the MO every single week on the podcast is to get some money in your pocket. Last week, not so good. The week before, really good. So what does that mean this week, folks? It means we're going to get back to our winning ways, no doubt about it. We're going to keep it the same as we have in the past there. We're going to pick on one college football game and one NFL game, see if we can put that money in your back pocket. We're going to start with some college football here on Saturday. 12 noon start, 373-374 is the rotation number. That is the Massachusetts Minutemen versus the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Say, Dottie, what are you picking this game for? You know, Massachusetts didn't even know they played football, only thought they had a basketball team. No, they play a little bit of football. Their record doesn't indicate it, but they're a sneaky tight ball club. And again, in this environment, 28 points. The Mississippi Bulldogs are laying here to the UMass Minutemen over under in this one 58. But we're going to stick with a side in this one. And we're going to take the 28 points here at the time of taping here. If we look at UMass since going back to their temple game where they're getting 14 and a half points, 29-21 cover. Going down to Tennessee, similar situation here, folks, getting 28 points and almost coming away with the outright victory, losing 17 to 13. At home versus the University of Ohio, 58-50, loss in that one, beat Georgia Southern 55-20, and beat outright, getting four points the Appalachian State Ball Club, which is a very good football team. So UMass turning it around a little bit, and I get it. Hey, look, Mississippi State is a good football team. If we take out the losses at Auburn and at Georgia, no slouch there. I mean, they're two really good football teams they lost to. Beat BYU at home 35-10, beat Kentucky at home 45-7, went on the road to AM. and And Kevin Sumlin's boys and beat them 35-14, to so it looks like they're headed for another route here. Not so fast, folks. I'm going to take the four touchdowns here, and the main reason why, look who's on deck for those Mississippi State Bulldogs next week. They're going to get a load of the Alabama team that's coming to town. Very interesting game here. And again, if you're a college football player saying, hey, you know what? UMass, we're game starting at 12 o'clock. Can't we just hurry up and get and play the Tide of Alabama the very next week there? I would agree. I think it's going to be a look-ahead situation. Am I asking UMass to win this football game? No, I'm not. Just stay within four touchdowns. I think they can do it. So we'll pay the toll in that game and take the 28 points from the UMass Minutemen here on the road traveling down the SEC territory. Let's flip it over to NFL Action. 455-456, a 1 o'clock game here on Sunday. Jamie. Winston's going to travel down to play take on Drew Brees. Obviously, that's the Buccaneers and the Saints. Over under in this ball game, folks, is fifty, and the line is minus seven. We're going to pick on actually the total in this football game and stay away from the side. I like the over in this situation. If we take a look at Tampa Bay, struggled last week, losing seventeen to three at home versus Carolina, and a very good defense. We all know that Jameis Winston battling a AC joint injury in his throwing shoulder. The week before that, where he did injure that also thirty to 20, excuse me, where he did play through it a thirty to twenty seven game. Also at Arizona. Arizona the week before that at 38 to 33, so the propensity for points is in, is there. We're going to lean towards it, and of course, we're going to take Drew Brees in the dome here, and also putting up points against a bad Tampa Bay secondary who still seems to be injured coming in this ball game, and possibly again without Brent Grimes, their best overall cornerback and secondary player. If you look at New Orleans last week, they did win over Chicago 20 to 12, playing Green Bay the week before 26 to 17. Now the MO of those two football games: rookie quarterback with Mitch Trubisky and Green Bay also starting uh, Brett Hundley in that game since Aaron Rodgers is hurt the week before that when they faced a real quarterback. 52-38 victory over Detroit in the Dome. Let's go ahead with the points in this situation. So just to recap today on Saturday, rotation 373-374. We're going to take the UMass Minutemen getting 28 points over the Mississippi Bulldogs and then flipping it over to Sunday. We're going to go over the total down in the dome of 50 points even. Hopefully we can put some money in our pockets here on the bridge. Thanks for tuning in to the toll booth here. Love doing this each and every week. Let's win some money for you guys out there this week. A little bit choppy on the season, winning one week, losing the next. Today and this weekend, we hope to get back to our winning ways. I'm Donnie Wrightside from SportsbookReview.com and DonnieWrightside.com. Good luck, and let's cash those wages this week, folks.
1: Left side, strong side. Left side, strong side. Left side, strong side. Left side, strong side. Left side. strong side. side. Strong
2: side. Ah! We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Beres. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. Along with Joe's final rating of the film Compared to something or someone in the sports world This week, a Halloween tradition has returned The Saw franchise is back with an eighth film And to show you how long this series has been around Saw 3 was the first and I believe only R-rated film That I snuck into under the age of 17 Ooh Whoa. Hence, Joe will break down Jigsaw, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as, after a series of murders bearing all the markings of the Jigsaw Killer, law enforcement find themselves chasing the ghost of a man dead for over a decade and embroiled in a new game that's only just begun. Is John Kramer back from the dead to remind the world to be grateful for the gift of life? Or is this a trap set by a killer with designs of their own? Or should the Saw franchise finally put an end to these films? You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mich. That's D U K E M I C H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at joe.com. Again, that's CupOfDash or hyphen or whatever you call it, Joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Beres. <laughs>
1: What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Baris and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The Saw franchise is back. Well, at least for one movie. As you may know, because you either know me or can see by my lack of an IT review, horror movies... ...are not really my cup of tea. I can handle the gore, and I love the psychological aspect of horror films, I just don't like the horror. James Wan is one of the biggest names in horror today, keeping the genre afloat with strong franchises such as The Conjuring and Insidious, but back in 2004 he got his start with the smash hit Saw, and the franchise ruled Halloween for years until its eventual seventh film, or quote-unquote, the final chapter. So why do I like these films? I enjoy a good psychological thriller, and almost half of these provide that. Saw is excellent and has one of my favorite twists ever, and please let's not forget that iconic score that beautifully builds throughout the film. The second one is also good, but as the series continued, the quality started to decline as the focus moved toward the gore instead of the psychological aspect. But for some reason, the sixth one found its footing. Basically... This is a guilty pleasure for me, and has a bit of a nostalgic value, as my friends and I used to see it every Halloween in high school. Yeah, that's how old this is. To those unfamiliar with the material, the franchise is based on a person who wants people to value their lives again. So he tries to save them by putting them into games or traps, which requires them to make a sacrifice that involves some sort of pain or torture. Those who have the courage to go through with it, live and some consider themselves saved. But as the series progresses, his philosophy gets a little murky, and his pupils definitely take the franchise all over the place. Sounds peachy, I know. I'm interested to see how Jigsaw is ultimately received, because I just don't think it fits the time anymore. But that's not why you're here. You want to know if it's good. So let's go to the tape. Is Jigsaw, a.k.a. John Kramer, still alive ten years later? that's the question the eighth film in the franchise asks. He died in the third film, by the way. Need I remind you, this is the eighth film. There's another game, another mystery, and another slate of mediocre actors at best that you've never heard of or at most say to yourself, I think I've seen this person in something before. Tobin Bell is Jigsaw is iconic with his voice and as this character. But you don't get the performances of a Danny Glover, a Carrie Elways, a Donnie Wahlberg as a protagonist like you did in the first two films. And all the characters are new, so you have no attachment to them. One thing this newest installment does well is it reels in the gore a little bit. It's still there, obviously, but it's not as over the top. And it tries to be intelligent again. I emphasize tried because the story is convoluted. But some elements do work. For those interested in the traps, they're okay, I suppose. One of them looks a bit cartoonish. For those interested in a solid twist or a good mystery, there's really not one to be had here. I had pieces of it figured out early, and everything I didn't pick out was too convoluted to piece together. For those who enter the franchise with this film, there's nothing for you here. If this movie was released today without the clout of the franchise behind it, Jigsaw would be buried and forgotten. I'm a fan of the franchise, so if they keep making them, I'll go see them. But at best, among the eight movies, this one is somewhere from the middle to the lower tier as far as quality. It has nothing new to offer. It doesn't evolve. It's the same thing, as if the franchise never stopped churning out movies. It's what I expected, but I just hoped they would try to set the bar a little higher. The bottom line, Jigsaw is okay. I just fans of the franchise go see it. You'll probably enjoy it. But unfortunately, it doesn't add a new layer. Instead, it's not memorable and ultimately unnecessary, which is what I expected. But I guess I just hope that returning to the franchise seven years later meant they had a good reason to, besides a cash grab. And for those who weren't fans of the franchise before, or are looking to get into the series through this movie, don't bother difficult to rank this because I think it accomplished what it meant to do, but I'll just quote the late, great Denny Green, former head coach of the Minnesota Vikings and Arizona Cardinals, in saying, they are who we thought they were, and we let him off the hook.
2: That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. The Bridge can also be found on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and heard live on Wednesday nights at 7 Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge keeping you connected with all things sports